orchids. That's what we're talking about today on the New Species Podcast. We're going to delve into two new species from Australia. Let's get right into it. New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today I'm joined by Dr. Nushka Ryder, a senior research scientist at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Victoria and Melbourne, Australia. She's here today to talk to us about a recent paper in the journal Phytotaxa, in which she and her co-authors described two new species of orchids from Australia. Welcome, Nushka. <laughs> good morning. <laughs> Yeah, good morning for you. Good evening for me. We're on opposite sides of the planet at the moment, and it's wonderful what technology allows. It is wonderful. <laughs> uh, you have, with your co-authors, described two new species of orchids, uh, obviously plants. Orchids, of course, are, are, are spread throughout the whole world, and they're found in all sorts of environments, and we'll talk about that momentarily. But But why are orchids... So fascinating to people. What what exactly are orchids? Let's start there. Like, in case there are people out there who who are like, I don't know, orchids are a type of plant. What's special about orchids? What makes them orchids? And then we'll start getting more specific with it. Yeah, I mean, orchids, you know, are are fascinating, and they're found in all sorts of environments, like you said, um, from the Alps to the desert. And we have, you know, over twenty five thousand species of orchid. Uh, across our planet so they're they're one they're the second most diverse plant family that we have in the world but I guess what makes orchids so interesting is their ecology so they have their uh, their adaptation to different environments and their associations with other organisms in our environment make them the some of the most uh, fascinating species on our planet to uh, study so orchids, all orchids, um, have uh, these tiny dust-like seeds and they produce thousands of seeds per pod and you think, oh, that's great, the planet's blanketed in orchids, but it's not. Every one of those seeds has to find a particular type of mycorrhizal fungi in the soil in order to germinate and grow. And so without that uh, in some cases, particular species of mycorrhizal fungi, um, those orchids can't germinate. They also so you're have... saying that they, that you, you, what you're saying here is, is that they can't grow by themselves. They have to have a fungus that helps them grow, right? Yeah. Um, so they're, they're unable to germinate by themselves in the wild. So they, they're completely reliant upon their mycorrhizal partners uh, to be present in order to germinate. And... Uh, for the fungi to be present, in many cases, the habitat needs to be intact. And so a lot of these fungi aren't found in our agricultural systems. Yeah, and they and they're, could even be very, very localized, right? So just in one small area of undisturbed ground or or one part of a mountain or, or who knows where, right? So we can make... With the Tens fungi, of thousands of seeds, but you got to get to just the right spot in order to be able to make a plant. You, you do have to get to just the right spot in order to make a plant. Uh, a lot of these fungi are quite widespread, 
but patchy in the environment, if that makes any sense. So, for example, some of our rarest spider orchids in Australia might associate with just one species of serendipita, which is um, this fairly unknown fungus in the soil. But that fungus is spread across um, both sides of our continent, so in Western Australia and Eastern Australia, but it's very patchy in the environment, so um, which makes it you know, quite difficult if you're wanting to spread widely. The other fascinating thing about orchids is their pollination mechanisms. So they have a variety of pollination mechanisms and they're the most diverse of any plant family in the world. So you have orchids that um, are quite traditional, so they provide a nectar reward uh, to their pollinators. You have other orchids which are deceptive, so they look and they smell good and they may even look like they're going to give, say, a pollen reward because they've got, say, false-coloured pollen on them, but they don't, so they're completely deceptive. And then you get these quite bizarre strategies which are... the two species that we described here today look like they belong to, where they're what we call sexually deceptive species and they uh, emit uh, a type of pheromone where the pollinators, in this case uh, a particular keraplatid, so... Uh, a fungus gnat. Yeah, a fungus Great. gnat, yeah. yeah. And, and they come in and they're obviously a little bit near, uh, nearsighted and they attach themselves to the labellum, which is a modified petal on the front of the orchid, and mate with it. And in doing so, the, these particular orchids have a trap mechanism. So the labellum flips up and the little fungus gnat gets trapped inside uh, the hood of the orchid And in order to get back out again, it has to go past both the stigma and then the uh, pollen and gets the pollen deposited on on its back. And so when it gets trapped again in the next flower, that's when you get pollen deposition and seed sets. So they're quite tricky and it's really interesting. Many orchids have this uh, sexually deceptive uh, pollination mechanism in Australia and they're often the small green and brown uh, less uh, showy orchids, but uh, ecologically speaking, they're far more interesting. So, so let's stick on this topic for just a minute. I, I was wanting to make sure we get to this in the podcast anyway, so it's great we just get it right out of the way. <laughs> basically, they're tricking the bugs into having sex with them. Yeah, basically. But, there's no, but, but th- they make the bug think like, I'm another sexy gnat. And then <laughs> when they try to have sex with them, they get trapped in a hole and the only way out is an escape hatch that gets pollen on them so that the next time they go and they get tricked into having sex with the flower, they end up in a little trap door and they have to crawl out. And then that's where the pollen gets deposited is on their way out of, through the second or third or fourth flower or whatever they've visited, right? Yeah. It, so we it, got horny little gnats running around that are not getting any actual offspring out of the deal. That's the most polite way to put that, right? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're having a good time and that's about the... <laughs> <laughs> And, but this isn't all that orchids are known for, right? So why are they so popular in the world, right? It has, I think, more to do with the flowers being very showy in many cases. And often where they live, they're quite well known for being epiphytes, right? So they grow on top of other things like on plants or, or trees or other things. 
can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, Australia's odd in that the most of our orchids, so most of our sort of just under 1,800 species of orchids are terrestrial, so they're ground, ground dwelling. However, the majority of orchids in the world are tropical, they're epiphytes, they live up on the top of trees, and they're incredibly showy. And throughout history, this has driven humanity uh, a little bit crazy. In fact, in the, in the 1800s, there was the orchid delirium, where uh, rich aristocrats from England and Europe uh, used to pay people to go out into the wilds and sort of take these orchids from the trees and bring them back to their collections, where they often died. But it was, you know, you could think about the 1800s and sending people out uh, to travel, which was pretty risky at that time. Not everyone came back from travel in the 1800s. Um, just so that they could acquire flowers for, for their home garden. So the blooms are exotic. They come in all sorts of shapes and colours and sizes and they have led to sort of large horticultural industries uh, throughout the world, um, particularly in the tropics. And it, it is, it's, it's the blooms and the fantastic colours and shapes that they come in which uh, has attracted uh, humanity into growing more. And they're very, very popular, even uh, just in the, the regular, you can go to your flower shop and send an orchid to somebody. So they're, they're, at least here in the United States, I know we're able to do that. I'm assuming that's a fairly worldwide phenomenon. Extremely popular, very showy, very pretty, very attractive but the ones you work on are a little little less showy and drab. They still have some pretty interesting-looking flowers to them, but they're not going to be as spectacular, right? And that's because they're not depending on those those main pollinators, the big showy bees and bumblebees and stuff to show up, yeah, bats well, and hummingbirds the, or whatever. The ones that you see in, in your nurseries are often not species, so they're hybrids. And right. so over hundreds of years, people have bred them and hybridised them to make uh, their floral displays uh, even more exciting than they were originally. So that's often not what you see in the wild. Um, but, yeah, the, the ones that we work with um, here uh, are sort of, they, they range in, in their colours. We can work with, you know, sort of giant, uh, giant for our, uh, taste, which is sort of knee-high, um, red spider orchids, which are uh, both stunning and really interesting. They're also pollinated by uh, thinned wasps that come in and mate with them. But the ones that we described here, uh, yeah, they're small, little green and brown orchids. Uh, they occur in the most fantastic habitats. So the two species that we've described here are um, up towards Wiperfeld and the Murray Sunset uh, National Park and in little little pockets around those. And that's that's reasonably remote. So if you're in Melbourne... So, and it's desert, no less, right? Yeah, it's, it's what we refer to as, as desert. It's, so if you were, say, in Melbourne, um, you would hop in a, in a car and you would head probably about seven or eight hours northwest of Melbourne and then you would put your uh, car into full drive and head up and over 
<laughs> yeah. Several sort of uh, red sand dunes and, and get to some of these sites. So they're incredibly remote and uh, it's in these remote places where we're still discovering new species. And I think it's very interesting when I was reading your title, I'll have this a link to your paper in the show notes and the title will be there and I'll say it again later, but sort of make sure I read part of it now. Two new species of pterostylus, that's the genus we're talking about, from the Sunset Country, Victoria, Australia. What, please tell me what the Sunset Country is. I know it's a national park, but but for other people, like, what, why is it called the Sunset Country? Do you have any idea about that? Yeah. It, I mean, it is, it is a landscape where the sunsets are spectacular. So by and large, it, it, it's quite a flat landscape. It's uh, sandy. And the sands uh, are, are sort of have that beautiful sort of red tinge to them. The trees are sparse and small, and uh, you've got sort of uh, sort of pockets of spinifex going throughout the eucalypts. And then as you get into the sort of you have sort of uh, hills and swales, and when you get into these swales, you you get these seasonally. Uh, damp areas and this is often where you get these roofers uh, which is the sort of clay that the, these the group of orchids you're in yeah yeah and it they take they take advantage that uh, we're in areas here of extremely low rainfall so you know less than 300 millimeters of rain um, annually and a lot of that occurs over the winter months and so they take advantage of that and uh, sort of emerge just as we're coming into winter and then and then flower in sort of late spring. They have amazing reserves for doing this. So all orchids have tubers, uh, often two, um, which is where, the, where, where orchids come from. And these species have quite large tubers. They're like little potatoes under the, under the ground. And by the time... Uh, the orchid is flowering often the leaves have withered and so it's just this uh, flowering stalk that's left on these particular pterostylus just hanging out waiting for the right gnat to show up yeah and i want to be sure that i underscore this to people in the title of your paper sunset is capitalized country is capitalized like it's a formal name it's not like <laughs> you're just saying, oh, this is a place of beautiful beautiful sunsets that's literally the name of the place, and it does sound very pretty. Uh, it, thank you for that nice habitat description, actually. That was great. Do we have any idea what they're doing ecologically? You, you gave us a pretty good picture of where we're going to find them and the kind of habitat they're in. Um, other than just existing and fooling poor gnats into sex, do, we, do they have a, additional ecological features that we're aware of? Are they food, for example? Like, does anything dig up the tubers or anything that we know of? So orchids are interesting in, in sort of this respect. So they're not, you know, your apex predators. They're not underpinning ecosystems. Orchids are reliant on everything else in the ecosystem to be in place for them to be able to flourish. So they're reliant on their mycorrhizal fungi. They're reliant on, you know, these gnats in this particular case. They're reliant on everything being there for the gnats to be able to be breed, to breed and, uh, you know, be intact. And they're reliant on rainfall at a particular type of time, time of year. So 
Orchids, uh, in some cases, can be quite good indicators of an area being intact. Um, and But they provide very little back into the environment. We're always surprised every now and then um, you uh, find a different story. We were up in the... Um, part of uh, my group was up in the Alps of New South Wales uh, doing surveys post-fire. Yes, we have Alps as well where, where it does snow. <laughs> um, <laughs> just to put that into context. And, you know, they, they, they found um, some presophyllums up there, which are these, again, small green and brown orchids. They're these what we refer to as leek orchids. And they were providing nectar for a variety of insects in these fields. But this is not the case with all orchids. Um, in some cases, the, the tubers do provide, you know, the occasional bit of tidbit of food uh, for uh, wandering critters. Um, some birds like to eat the tubers of, of orchids. But by and large, they don't give a lot back to the environment in that respect. And that's fine. They don't have to. It was just curious, you know, yeah. uh, a lot of people kind of wonder what they do, like when they're epiphytes and like, I think you, you define it very well right there. Um, in many cases, they're doing other things in the environment that we don't view as very critical in some ways, but they end up being that way at the end of the day, particularly if it's just providing a, a good indicator of being a healthy environment. Because if you don't have the right conditions, these won't be there. Yeah, and and this is we're seeing this play out uh, across the world. Uh, many species of orchids are threatened, and in Australia, where our landscape is largely um, now sort of carved up between agriculture and our cities are growing, uh, a lot of the habitat has either been modified or removed for many of these species, and we now um, so orchids are. Uh, the most threatened family in Australia and we have just under you know 200 species that are nationally threatened and these weren't previously so so this is because of habitat modification so we can see this for a variety of reasons right yeah uh you know introduced weeds rabbits uh, as well as you know wholesale habitat development climate change the long list of usual things that are affecting things worldwide, but particularly in Australia, I think, as far as some of those weeds and rabbits and that sort of thing that people, uh, I don't think, know are necessarily invasive and quite damaging to your sometimes quite sensitive ecological realms. Yeah, we, uh, we have a, a, an interesting history, um, particularly on the European settlement side of things where... Uh, Early European settlers thought it was fantastic to bring uh, hooved animals and uh, also rabbits and and uh, all sorts of interesting uh, vegetation, which which then became weedy, and it, it has been quite quite destructive to the landscapes here. Of which the landscapes here are old, um, and the soils are incredibly old, and. Uh, the habitat hadn't evolved to deal with, uh, you know, these type of threats. So it, it was incredibly destructive. And so the places that these are found are relatively pristine and sometimes quite remote. Uh, I know the ones that you specifically got, these two new species, you you outlined in the paper, you had to go out and 
to 14 different sites and do quite a bit of, of work. You're doing some transect work, trying to find them, that sort of thing. Tell us a little bit about what it takes to get to find these things in the field. I understand you don't want to tell us where they are for a lot of a lot of good reasons so people don't go out and try to find them, but what what are what are the challenges of going into the field to find these things? And what was it like trying to go find them in the field? Oh, look, lots of fun. It was it was lots of fun. <laughs> and um, you have to pinch yourself to call that work. Um, but I mean the the difficulties arise from the remote travel. You're a long way away from anywhere. Um, the phones don't work. It's uh, satellite phones, uh, if you're lucky. And the um, the skills to get into these places and the time of year when you're out there, it's actually quite warm. So in some cases, you're, you're doing these surveys in sort of 35 degree weather. Um, so there are, there are those aspects to it, but you know, it's lovely. You take your swag, you camp out there. Um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, it's incredibly interesting. Uh, I particularly targeted areas, um, that there had been, uh, sightings of roofers in the Murray sunset. Um, just from community knowledge and uh, people that have been travelling through the area. There was also um, some old records in the herbarium that looked like they didn't add up to sort of uh, what we currently understood had been described from that area. And so you were looking at old records and going, okay, that sort of said that it was, you know, 20 k's south of, of this lake in the middle of the Murray sunset. Let's let's go and have a look at what's 20k south <laughs> of that sure. particular lake. Um, and and I was also targeting those swales that I was talking about in the landscape, so those seasonally wet areas. So um, because of what we understand of similar species elsewhere, they were unlikely to occur on the sand dunes. And so it, it, it was when we got down into those swales that it was sort of like, okay, let's let's hop out of the car and have a look at, you know, what we can see in these areas so yeah and at certain times of the year you're not going to see anything right you're trying to get there while they're flowering so you can most easily collect them and identify them right and you you have kind of a two-month window to take care of that yeah it's that it, sound about right it, it, yeah it's about a six week about a six week window um two months at best uh that you have and you can certainly go surveying at other times and um my colleague uh, on the paper, Bill Kosky actually was incredibly helpful with with these sites. So he'd um, gone into some areas uh, in winter and went looking for the rosettes. And so you don't know what species. Those, that's the little basil bit of leaves that's sticking up without the flower stalk sticking out, right? Yeah, and and they are. They're sort of, you know, a, a sort of like a ball-sized rosette of, of leaves that overlap with each other on the ground. And so he he went up several times uh, during winter, just popping in and out of these swale type areas, going, okay, well I can see rosettes here. They'll be they'll be handy to come back and um, and check those out uh, later on in the season. So yeah, it, it was. And a you're very heading into winter. Sorry, you're heading into winter right now, right? We are. It's freezing here at the moment. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's it's. In centigrade, it's about twenty-eight degrees centigrade here today, okay. uh, and and beautiful. So, 
It's it's about just to brag. Yeah, we're we're certainly heading into into winter, and we're um, just starting to gear up for field work here. So uh, the main work that I do is rewilding orchids, so uh, introducing threatened orchids back into the wild, and we're sort of gearing up uh, to do that in a few weeks. And often it's uh, four degrees. <laughs> when when we start our mornings but it's just just so we're clear on this though i did an interview with somebody who was in tasmania a few weeks ago uh about a month and a half or two months ago and it was and i'm not exaggerating about negative 20 celsius here so that gives you an idea of the kind of strange temperature swings we get so when you say four degrees celsius i'm like ah that's still shorts weather oh no Yeah. Wait. Yeah. Sorry, I had to do that divergence right there. That's just so great. I love it when I talk to people who are like, "Oh, that's cold." I'm like, "You have no idea what cold is." Do you? <laughs> but speaking of the orchids, though, one of the things I found when I, I remember learning about orchids, there are orchids that are found as far north as past the Arctic Circle. Uh, so they they go extremely far north, and there's even some on southern islands that are getting down close to uh, Antarctica. So these things go from pretty extreme environments, right? They're not always just found hanging out on a tropical tree. They have really, really varied environments found on all six continents outside of Antarctica. Yeah, that that, that that that's correct. And they're found from the deserts, which we're talking about with these species, to, you know, alpine environments. They're in pretty much – there's even some that have been found around the rims of salt lakes. So we're talking extreme – they've – adapted to extremes in the environment and and again that's what makes them so fascinating the the way that they've adapted to these different environments yeah and with 25 to 28 30,000 species whatever it is that you you're going to find some diversity in that i think so it's a they're a fascinating group and when you were deciding that these were new species you looked at 23 different morphological characters. I mean, you're looking at 23 different parts of the flowers and kind of measuring things. Tell us a little bit about that process and what it was you were looking for. Yeah, so uh, I guess whenever you're describing a new species, you need to put it in context of what has already been described. So you go back to um, the original descriptions of what you think are closely related species and you have a look at all the characters that describe those. And in particular, it's really important to go back to uh, the type specimens and and as well as the descriptions so that you have a really good idea of uh, what, what it is that you're comparing what is potentially your new species uh, to. And so, so that's what we did within the um, Brufa group of Terrastylus. We uh, had a look at the uh, species that had already been described that were most closely related uh, to the ones that we were looking at. And we, we measured all different sorts of characters. So from height to how far apart the leaves were to, um, in particular, a lot of the floral characters, because with these sexually deceptive species, it's potentially quite important, um, in particular, the part of the orchid that, uh, the gnat might mate with. So, because, if, if that was to change slightly, potentially, that might be enough to, um, to not have that relationship work as well and, 
and therefore be a different species. So we, we did co concentrate quite a lot on the floral characters, in particular that labellum, the arrangements of hairs on the labellum, um, the width and, and depth. And the labellum is like this little tongue-like thing that comes out of the floral characters, right? Like if you're looking at the flower, there's like a little tongue-like thing that comes out. Yeah, so that, it's, it's a modified petal. And in this case, it um, is is the one with this hinge mechanism that the the gnat mates with and then flips the gnat inside the hood of the orchid. So in this particular case, uh, the labellum would be pretending essentially or faking it as a female gnat. And so the, the structure of that labellum could potentially be quite important. So we were comparing those structures uh, as well as, you know, other more obvious, you know, um, sort of uh, floral characters to each other. And uh, we came up with sort of 23 odd characters that we thought um, could potentially tell the difference between different species. And we tested that idea. And what we did have in that area of the Murray Sunset National Park was uh, a little bit of a mess. There were various things that people thought may have been a species or might not be and so they'd just been put down as a species affiliation and we were testing this that idea. That means kind of close to it but we're not sure. Yeah close to not sure probably needs testing and so that's that's what we went about asking the question and in one case we found that the really widespread one that we were finding across most of those sites that we surveyed was actually a described species from another state and when we compared all of those characters, it came out with, with an already described species, whereas these other two came out quite separate um, when we had a look at the morphology. <laughs> now that you've decided, okay, so we have uh, in your, the way you did this, you did like a, an analysis where you're able to pull out like, okay, these two species or these two groups of things, uh, this group of flowers we looked at and this group of flowers we look at seem to be one species and this looks like another species. And then you get to name them, and that's always the fun part in this whole process. Uh, we've got uh, Terrastylus genesii and Terrastylus picolana. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Genesii is, is, is named for somebody who did a lot of orchid collection, but then picolana was a more interesting one. Why, why specifically that one? Who is the picol? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll answer to the first one first, though. Um, so genesii... Uh, was named after Jeff Jeans, who was a botanist at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria. And he described quite a lot of orchids, but also quite a lot of other uh, plants. And he was a great taxonomist. And he also had flagged that uh, he'd had um, a collection of what is now Terrastylus genesii from the Murray Sunset, and he'd flagged there's something different about this. And then it just went into the collections um, waiting to be looked at further. So, so that's why, why Genesia. For Picolana, um, yeah, uh, Professor Rod Peekle, he's at the Australian National University. Um, he's a wonderful guy and his lab group um, and um, Rod, they look and they've been delving into uh, sexual deception as a mechanism in orchids, how it works, 
um, the chemistry of. In fact, uh, his lab group can now make the chemicals for some of these orchids and reproduce uh, the behavior. So you from too insects. can have gnats come to your house <laughs> and try to mate with random things you put pheromones on. Yeah, he's he's been concentrating on um, the ones that are pollinated by thinides, um, so thinine wasps, and um, so they they can now reproduce in some cases the chemical for particular types of wasps and just put a drop on a bead and have um, those wasps come in and mate with the bead instead of the orchid, um, which you know it, it's fascinating and. He also elucidated... And a, and a feel-bad moment all at the same time. A little bit of a feel-bad moment as you're like, oh, that poor wasp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is fascinating. You're correct. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just no, kind of thinking, no, no, like, no, oh, that no. poor it, wasp. It's just wasted effort. It, it, it is fascinating. And um, he, he also um, has pioneered um, sort of the, the studies on many genera of Australian orchids as far as their pollination mechanisms are concerned. And so when we had this uh, unique green and brown orchid that um, is uh, sort of um, uh, has a sort of a sexually deceptive pollination mechanism, we thought, well, that is the person to name it after. <laughs> and I bet he was thrilled. He was very excited. Um, he was chuffed. And it was it, it was pretty good. So um, yeah, we look we look forward to uh, showing uh, Rod the species that is named after him in the wild uh, in the next uh, field season, hopefully. So that will. Oh, be that good. sounds fascinating. Yeah. Well, Nushka, I want to really thank you for coming on the podcast. This is great. I. Really enjoyed talking to you and learning a little bit more about orchids, and hopefully some other people did too. They're going to learn something when they hear this. And I know it's busy, and it's very early in the morning for you over there. Well, not very early, but it's early enough in the morning, and it's late enough over here. We should probably say goodbye and let you get on with your day as I get on with mine. Uh, and Because I'm heading off towards a beer and going to bed while you're still starting your day. I'm heading off towards <laughs> my second coffee, and... <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then heading into work for the day. Um, but, yeah, thank you so much for um, inviting me on and, and letting me chat about a, a few little Australian orchids. And um, I hope your listeners find find them intriguing. Yes, and thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> Once again, Dr. Nushka Ryder's paper is in the May 13 issue of the journal Phytotaxa. The title of the paper is Two New Species of Pterostylus from the Sunset Country, Victoria, Australia. See the episode details for a link to her paper. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash New Species Podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash New Species Podcast. <laughs>